You're listening to this week's excerpt from the Dear Prudence podcast. To get the full-length, members-only version every week, join Slate Plus at slate.com slash prudipod. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the Dear Prudence podcast once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Daniel Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is Eamon Ismail, an award-winning podcast host, video editor, photographer, and writer at Slate whose work focuses on identity and religion. He currently hosts Man Up, an interview podcast about men and relationships, family, race, and sex. Eamon, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited, too, in part because we have just some exciting and energizing letters. And also because, as I mentioned to you just a moment ago, we are recording today on tax day. And I just came from uh, my tax preparer's office and the post office. And I'm so excited to focus on somebody else's problems because my own problems are real and I don't like them. (laughs) So I'm excited to have you here. Uh, I'm excited to have you help us kind of wade through the many problems that can arise when you are a person in the world. Um, have you ever uh, given advice before? Is this kind of your first time uh, telling people how to live their lives? No, I am. I am the advice guru of my circle. I can. I can tell you that all of our readers and all the people who submitted questions are in good hands. Good. Oh. Uh, I am. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I. I got married last year, and I am the first of my circle of friends to actually uh, take the plunge and tie the knot. So ever since then, I've been the the relationship guru of my community. Yay! Uh, congratulations on getting married. And um, this is great. I'm just going to let you take the lead on all of this then. <laughs> would you be so good as to read our first letter? I would love to. Uh, so the subject from this letter is Young Hearts Running Too Free. Dear Prudence, I'm a woman working in a very male-dominated industry, and my job requires me to travel up to 50% of the time every year usually for a week or two, or three each month. I love the work, love my coworkers, and love the travel. But it is making my boyfriend of two years very sad that he never gets to see me. We are both low-key, independent people, so the work was a bonus at first because it allowed us both to have our space while enjoying the time we did get, by, uh, while enjoying the time we did spend together. But now that it's been nearly two years with no end in sight, I think he's getting discouraged. He's never asked me to quit, He's very supportive and kind, and we try to plan fun trips when we can. But it's making me feel like I'm a bad partner to enjoy my work as much as I do. I do miss him when I'm gone, but I find a lot of fulfillment in being good at my job as well. I've applied for many positions that would require less travel, and I don't see myself traveling to this extent two years from now. But right now, I don't know what to say to help him feel better. I'm traveling even more than normal this year because I'm trying to make as much money as I can so we can buy a house together. So the time apart is even longer, and we are both stressed about money, which is driving tensions up. Prudy, the only thing I don't like about my job is how little I get to see my boyfriend, and how sad it makes him when he's not there. What can I say to him? Should I be looking harder for a different job? Should I just answer? Please, yeah. So I relate to this on a very personal level. Uh, When I first met my my wife-to-be, we were just dating at the time, she had just gotten a job in California. 
And I really liked my job in New York. So we decided to just keep the long distance and live on opposite coasts of the country for a while. We knew that it was going to take up to a year, but we really didn't know what was going to happen after that. So that was scary, right? We, I didn't really get to spend any time with her at all, really. Uh, flying to Los Angeles from New York is expensive. And I could really only do it about once every two months. And when I did do it, it was only for a few days because my, my job was demanding and as was hers. So in the end, what we relied on was the internet. It's kind of crazy how well connected you can feel to somebody even if you're not in the same room with them. Now, obviously, this doesn't replace intimacy, but at the same time, uh, knowing that at some point we were going to be together again and it was going to make everything worth it uh, really helped a lot psychologically, at least for me. Uh, so... It really comes down to how you personally feel about this person, because the way that I was looking at the way that I was looking at it was, I wasn't trying to be in a relationship with someone. I was hoping to build a life, a future with someone, uh, and I felt like I had met the perfect person to do that with, and I was willing to do uh, anything. And sometimes, uh, really, re I was willing to to undergo really difficult difficult circumstances to make it work. So, um, if you are excited about who this person is and what your life could be together, I think stick it out. Yeah, I, I, I got the feeling reading this letter that um, they've talked about it only like a little bit or kind of like they've both been very careful. Like he's been really careful to say like, I'm not telling you to quit your job. Um, and, and she's been very careful not to say like, I won't leave my job. And so I think they're maybe being a little too tentative with one another right now. Um, and I think the kind of next move here needs to be for her to say, this is a problem that I think we both have noticed. I don't have a, a solution for it right now, but I can tell you that I, I don't see myself traveling this much in another two years. Um, how does that strike you? Like when you hear that, do you think, okay, let's find a way to make the next year to a year and a half more bearable while I kind of work with my own boss to, um, change my travel schedule or do you hear that and say I, I can't actually do another couple of months of this it's it's either we need to break up or really reevaluate this right now so I, I think just being willing to have that conversation because you know neither one of you is delivering an ultimatum neither one of you is like doing anything wrong um, so I, I think it's just time to have that sort of conversation of long term how okay are you with this yeah I couldn't agree more I think uh Whoever wrote this letter clearly cares a lot about their partner. And for for someone to even consider leaving the job that they love for someone else tells me that they really, really, really want this relationship to work. So I think that they should absolutely have that conversation. But in the end, maybe set a goal in the future, right? Maybe if this can't happen, last forever, uh, maybe when enough money is uh, accumulated and they can buy that house, then then it'll all be worth it. Yeah, and and I think, you know, to talk honestly with your boss about, hey, in two years, I don't see myself traveling three months every month out of the year. Do you think I'm on track to achieve that? And if your boss says, I can't make any promises, then you might need to reevaluate, you know, how important is this relationship to me? Um, how many other jobs that are comparable to this one but would require less travel are available? Um, you know, look into all your options so that you're not just like either I need to quit tomorrow and find a job where I never travel or I can't make any promises. I have no idea what the future holds. It's totally out of my hands. Word. Yeah, but this, you know, it's a hard one. You, I think, you know, 
you may very well end up breaking up over this. And I think that that will kind of be um, you'll be able to check in with yourself if you think, you know, if we broke up over this, would I be sad but wish him well and kind of understand? Or would it feel like, no, this is totally unacceptable. I'm willing to kind of move heaven and earth here. Um, You know, that's important information to get from yourself first. Um, But certainly I would not say like, don't quit this job tomorrow. Don't quit without having something else lined up that you feel pretty good about. Um, Don't make any sudden uh, movements so much as just start having more regular kind of state of the union conversations so you can get a sense of, um, do we just need to like have more scheduled check-in time on the phone and get through another year of this? Or is one of us like ready to call it a day? Uh, And if I can say one more thing, this is 2019. Amazon is a thing. I've... Uh, ways that I've wanted to, so I also felt similar in how I've wanted to feel more involved in my my girlfriend's life, even though we were living on opposite ends of the country. So I'd randomly send her uh, gifts in the mail uh, overnight just to let her know that I'm around. And it's kind of fun. She'll send me videos of her opening the packages. You know, uh, we'll also like have late night Skypes and I'll sometimes just call Uh, delivery and she'll just like find somebody knocking on the door and it's boom Chinese food like these kinds of things where you can still interact with each other uh, at a distance it makes it a lot of fun and I didn't get a chance to do this but in my research of looking up ways to interact with people that are far away they have like these bluetooth uh sets of underwear where you can uh, oh communicate with your loved one that way. Uh, there is, there's a lot of like cool Wi-Fi stuff you could do and to mess with somebody's uh, uh, space, you know? So I think there's a lot to explore if you are feeling like, uh, if, you're, if you are feeling too removed from someone, there's lots of ways you can get involved and change that uh, if you use technology the right way. Yes. And not, you know, I totally understand if you're like, I don't want to involve any kind of like uh, Amazon Echo technology into my underwear. I think that would be totally fine. But I, I, I love the sentiment behind that, which is find ways that are relatively inexpensive and, and that involve kind of sending one another little surprises um, in the mail uh, while you're apart. Again, that's not going to be a long term solution. But in the short term um, might help you both feel a little more connected. Yeah, that, that one's kind of it. This is a tricky one and, and I wish them the best, but I don't have a really strong sense of like break up right now or quit your job right now. So it's just going to involve, I think, a lot of talking. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This next one, uh, the subject is chatty survivalist. And um, I, man, oh man, um, I look forward to talking this one through because I, I, I was a little taken aback. So here it is. Dear Prudence, 
My office, although it's not a hospital, is similar in that we deal with members of the public coming in at all hours of the day and night. When there aren't members of the public around, we work on a lot of group projects and have plenty of time to get to know one another, tell jokes, and build camaraderie. I'm on a senior level and have some responsibility for directing our shifts, but I'm not management and I'm not in charge of things like hiring, firing, or taking disciplinary actions, although I do have, I think, some leverage with management. Recently, an entry-level coworker, young and possibly a bit naive, mentioned during a slow shift that he has a survivalist side and that he has a stockpile of guns and rations and survivalist gear and that he is prepared in case various states secede and America degenerates into a civil war. He didn't seem angry when he said this, and in general he's been pleasant to work with. So do I ignore it and assume that that's just his personal business slash perfectly legal? Or should I give management a heads up for them to do whatever they wish with the information, if anything? My company has good, well-defined HR policies, and I respect our manager's judgment. That being said, my coworker has had some attendance issues. He may have a legitimate excuse, as I believe his child has a chronic illness that he sometimes suddenly has to go deal with. But I don't know if he's already on shaky ground with management, since I'm not involved with dealing with attendance and performance reviews. I also know that you can't always generalize from your own personal interactions with someone and extend that to everything else that they do. I also feel sort of responsible for keeping the rest of the staff safe as well. What would you do? Oh, this is an interesting one. Mm -hmm. One of the things, this isn't really an answer, but one of the things I think is really interesting about uh, the sort of like survivalist um, approach to the world is you never hear about somebody who's who thinks like, man, I believe like, you know, some sort of apocalypse is nigh. So I've started like stockpiling ways to help people or <laughs> I've started like spending a lot of time figuring out how I can be more useful to people around me or like bolster up society. It's always like I think the end is coming and I'm going to get mine. Yeah. <laughs> I don't generally think that that's a great approach to life. Um, but yeah, what was your read on this? What, if this was you, if this was a coworker of yours, what's what's your take here? So I'm I've kind of had a different relationship with uh, survivalist communities. I'm one of those kids who grew up in uh, a community where there was a little bit of animosity between. Uh, you know, the young kids and the teenagers and the young adults and the police officers, we didn't necessarily feel like we were on the same team or on the same side a lot uh, for a lot of reasons. So uh, when it came to survival in our community, it wasn't uh, because of an impending civil war that was going to come. It was more so just to give us a sense of empowerment uh, so we can take back some of that power from the people in our communities that are deputized and have weapons and sometimes use them. So it was just knowing how to, if we needed to, survive in the woods for a week uh, gave us a little bit more security than, say, stockpiling a bunch of weapons. So that being said, uh, I am also a little uh, concerned just in the way that uh, the the writer who asked this question described the uh, the coworker as being young and naive. So that does give me a little bit of pause. But I wonder if it's that person's responsibility to alert their bosses. I think that might be a little intrusive. I think, uh, if anything, uh, you, there's not enough information to go off of to, to take that next step and you know, possibly put someone's life, uh, put, put someone's earnings in jeopardy. Yeah, I, I think I'm with you there. I think there's obviously, I think there's a lot of different approaches to 
uh, various survival techniques. And I think, as you say, a lot depends on, like, are you coming from a context where, like, historically you're part of a community that hasn't been served by, like, mainstream social programs? Or are you, like, a, a you know, white conspiracy theorist kind of looking for reasons to justify your own aggression? And we don't have enough information here to kind of know where this guy is coming from. Um, so I, I think I'm with you there. I, I don't think that the letter writer has yet heard anything that would warrant going to HR. If you, letter writer, feel uncomfortable talking about guns at work, um, that's totally fine and legitimate. And I think if he were to bring it up again, apropos of nothing, um, you could acknowledge that and say something along the lines of like, hey, I would prefer not to discuss, um, you know, possible secession or civil war and stockpiling at work. Um, and that would be fine. Um, and then, you know, if that changed, if he started bringing it up in a more aggressive way, then you might want to bring it up with HR. But as you say, he was not bringing it up in a way that seemed designed to let people know, I have a lot of weapons and you should be kind of afraid of me. Um, so I, I think this would fall under the category of, you know, uh, you don't have to do anything with this information. Um, you are not uh, risking your coworkers' well-being by not sharing this with HR. Yeah, yeah, I I, I agree. I think uh, there's a there's a fine line between uh, someone wanting to just learn more about survivalist tactics and and stockpile weapons because they're a collector and are maybe excited about going to the range and etc. And someone who feels as though they need to get ready for an impending war against their neighbors. I think um, maybe that line isn't so fine, but at the same time, I think, uh, you know, making that distinction is important to, uh, it's important to make that distinction before taking it to HR and bringing it up to somebody's boss. Right. Yeah. Right now, I don't think your coworker has said anything that would um, make uh, me think, oh man, if he gets in a fight at work, he might try to um, threaten or harass or intimidate somebody. So um, yeah, I, I think right now, you know, go ahead and uh, assume if he doesn't bring it up again that you're doing the right thing. If he does, you can, you know, lightly and politely just ask him not to talk about this at work. Um, then if he escalates, you can reevaluate. But but as it stands right now, I think it's um, I think it's okay to just kind of chalk that up to we are different. <laughs> We're different. Please don't shoot me. Yeah. I mean, that's a good approach <laughs> to life in general. So uh, in keeping with this kind of tone of like, you know, what is uh, what is my relationship to uh, surprising or distressing things other people say? This next letter, I think, is a slight escalation um, where, where the person, in fact, does have some actionable information um, and... Uh, I'm excited to, to try to help this person work through the next right thing. So if you wouldn't mind reading this letter. Sure. Uh, the subject of this letter is so many things I could have said. Dear Prudence, I'm a white progressive. I try to be thoughtful but have a poor memory, get flustered easily, and am not well suited for debates. But I also want to speak up when other white people say and do racist things. I socialize with other parents so my, so my kids can have play dates. Against my better judgment, I took my kid on a play date to the house of a mom I dislike, Becky, who I knew was a verbally aggressive, confrontational steamroller. Our kids are good friends. Unfortunately, Becky turns out to be an appalling racist. I was outnumbered in her home, and I am ashamed to say when she said some awful stuff, I froze. I failed to even manage a J-smooth, whoa, not cool. I think Becky was aware of my discomfort and even seemed to enjoy it. 
Later, the other adult present demanded to know where I stand on Trump, and when I told the truth, started ranting against me. I think Becky is volatile, but all the other moms in my kids' class are friends with her, but I'm worried about what she might do if she decides I am an enemy of hers. Under any other circumstances, I would carefully and delicately ghost her, but I'm going to be seeing her every school day for years to come. She wants to have another play date, and I'm agonizing. I do not want her in my house, and I am disgusted with myself for failing to stand up for my deepest beliefs. But she also worries me. Do I make scheduling excuses? Do I tell her I feel our values are too different to be friends or have play dates and go from there? Do I grid myself and kindly but firmly speak my truth the way the better part of me insists I should, come what may, knowing it will likely start some shit and I am extremely unlikely to change her mind? Do I compromise with a play date at my house, but wear my Black Lives Matter shirt and plan to have the conversation on my turf? How do I overcome my moral cowardice and physical and emotional anxiety and just do this thing? Uh, or shouldn't I, given that I already feel nervous and uncomfortable about her? And keeping in mind that anything I do or say will probably blow up the kid's friendship, and none of that is the fault of Becky's child or mine. Please give me some wisdom on how to handle this. Wow, I have a lot of things to say about this because this is this is my domain. Uh, yeah. At Slate, I produced a show called "Who's Afraid of Amin Ismail," where I uh, interrogated my own beliefs and the beliefs of people who had uh, strong convictions about how they felt about me. So I think uh, it was it was a, it was an, it was a way to experiment with what kinds of uh, argument what kinds of arguments work with people who already have a preconceived. Uh, notion of whether or not you're a villain. So uh, what I would do in this circumstance is to call her out immediately and uh, and do so hilariously. I know I think, uh, I mean, I've been there where I've only been the only person and everybody around me has been very aggressive and I've felt singled out and bullied. Uh, but at the same time, if you kind of laugh and make it a joke and show that their uh, perspective uh even though they're trying to antagonize you and get a rise out of you isn't really working, you don't really give them that power to then abuse you and make you feel abused. So what I would do is I would proudly wear my Black Lives Matter t-shirt the next day, maybe throw some buttons on too. And, uh, and I wouldn't let that stop uh, our kids from socializing. I think it's a, it's a good environment to always be in these spaces where it's okay to disagree but have fun. Uh, but at the same time, disagreements when it comes to the humanization of other people is not a disagreement. That's an act of an aggression. And I think those acts of aggression need to be called out and stamped out everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned the, the t-shirt idea. Cause I, I could hear that kind of what the letter writer was hoping for was if I explain <laughs> how bad I am at talking in the moment, can I just get away with having a t-shirt, have this conversation for me? Um, and my guess is the reason the letter writer wants to wear that shirt in particular is because something that Becky said had to do with black people and, and like specifically anti-black racism. Um, so, you know, to that end, I, I don't think inviting her over and wearing that shirt is going to be a substitute for having any kind of comment, um, uh, about what she said to you. Um, I, but I I do think it will be helpful for this letter writer to um, let go of the fear that if I don't say this in a really like scathing way, it doesn't count, right? Like 
it feels like they are like worried, like if I don't say it really fluently or if I don't say it really confidently, um, it doesn't count or it won't matter. Um, and so I, I, my advice here would be you don't have to have an incredible comeback. You don't have to um, like, you know, put her down in such a way that like everyone else in the playground starts to applaud you. Um, <laughs> all you need to do is say, um, you know, the other day, when you and your friends were saying racist things, I didn't speak up because I felt flustered and stunned. Um, I just want to follow up on that conversation and say that I object to it and it was wrong. And that's it. Um, you just you have to be clear. You don't have to win a debate. You just have to be clear that it was racism and that you don't like it. Um, I think if that's your goal, you'll be able to accomplish that. Some of the other stuff about like, um, I'm going to have to see her every day it's, I don't know if you're both also teachers or if you're just unbelievably involved parents, but if there's any way you can live your life in such a way that you don't have to be spending tons of time like at your kid's school, I think that would probably be a good thing. Um, if it's totally unavoidable, it's okay for a racist, awful person not to like you. Um uh, so you don't have to if she wants to have a fight with you after you've just said that was racist and that's not OK, uh, you can kind of let her know, like, Becky, I'm not going to get into a fight about this with you uh, and then like just walk away. But I do think it's important to say clearly once. And if you have to write it down, if you have to say that to her over the phone so you can refer to a little script, that's OK, too. Um, but I, I do think it's important to say once and then not worry about whether or not you feel like you're winning an ongoing competition or debate. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. I also think that uh, it's not every white person's responsibility to be fluent on these issues. So it's totally understandable that you don't feel that you have the the kind of political knowledge and prowess and literacy to be able to debate with someone like that. Uh, but what I can encourage you to do is to um, introduce her to someone who can, you know, uh, and not another uh, white progressive who uh, can really speak on behalf of black people, uh, just going off of what you said about the Black Lives Matter t-shirt. Uh, I think maybe putting her in a space, maybe the next play date, invite another black family and, uh, and their black children to come and play as well. So that way uh, they can speak for themselves. Uh, I think that can be a lot more effective uh, because it's really difficult to hate someone if you're standing right in front of them. If all that you're going off of is what you've heard about someone, it's very understandable that you become uh, that you, you start to create these preconceived ideas and these notions and fill in the blanks for yourself. And that probably can create some racist sentiment. But I think if you are exposed to different kinds of cultures, especially uh if you're exposed to black culture and black people, um, I think the chances of you becoming racist against the black people go down. So maybe it comes down to just uh, inviting one of your black friends or uh, black parents to come and, uh, and have like a big joint play date together. So I, ha I have a question there because my thought is that um, in that situation, I, I think it would be good to ask first like rather I, like just because I wouldn't want um, the letter writer to invite somebody over and say it's going to be a fun play date and then have them be surprised so like do you think it would make sense to like check in first and see like is anyone interested in doing this because I, I wouldn't want to like tell someone hey we're going to have a play date 
surprise, you have to, um, you know, win over a racist right now. Does that make sense? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think the hope for me is that there wouldn't be an argument at all. It would just be a a way to introduce them to someone else who uh, whose humanity can't be denied. So, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, if you can find someone because not everyone's going to be willing to have that kind of uh, engagement. Not everybody wants to spend their Sunday morning arguing with a racist who denies their humanity. Uh, but those people are out there and uh, I'm one of those people. I'm more than happy to be hmm. that, that Muslim guy that you invite to the, the anti-Muslim party. So um, I don't have kids yet, but maybe one day. So I think uh, if you do want to go about it that way, you can. But I think ultimately, maybe just let them know that there is this other person who's uncomfortable around black people. You want them uh, to know that at, at the bare minimum, but they shouldn't also be expected to go in and debate uh if anything, I'd be very surprised if the if the the other parent chose that moment to turn it into a debate. Yeah, yeah. I think I would in that case. I would just want to err on the side of um, I would not want to put anyone in the position of having to kind of um, uh, put their own identity and life and their own children um, uh, like on defense. Um, and so, if somebody uh, were not comfortable with that, don't push for that. Um, uh, and don't underestimate the possibility that Becky could absolutely be capable of seeing somebody else and denying their humanity anyways. Um, but, right. but mostly totally I think, agree. yeah, the goal here is just to say once, e- even if it's quietly and softly, what you said at your house the other day was racist and it wasn't okay. Um, and to leave it at that. Um, and, you know, you don't have to tell your kid to avoid her kid. Um, you can certainly explain to your kid, like, here's why, um, you know, I spoke to Becky again. Um, here's the ideas that she was putting forth that I think are really bad and damaging. This is a little bit about what racism is. I want you to know what it is so that when you see it in your own, uh, like, community, you, you know that it's racist and, and not good. And, um, have you know, that's a good opportunity for a conversation with your kid. So you might not be able to win over Becky, but you'll be able to have a good conversation with your child about, you know, what does it mean to address racism when we see it? And that's somebody that you do have influence over and who may very well um, learn to to not uh, go down that path. So that's that's a, a chance you have to be a force for good right there. Definitely. So uh, this next one is... I have to give man, better advice. Your advice is so much better than mine. Well, I, I, I just think, you know... <laughs> Oftentimes it's just easy like when we're sitting here in a booth to think like how would you do this and and it can be hard especially for somebody who's um, not used to getting into a lot of fights like to think oh I think I, I messed up the other day I think I was too nervous how do I fix that how do I change that without saying you have to become like a, a perfect debater tomorrow um, and right. it's yeah so back to the office uh I'm excited about this one because I think we have an opportunity here to help someone do a little bit less. And I often like being able to encourage someone to do that. So the subject is co-workers affair. Dear Prudence, last fall, I accidentally found out about an affair between two colleagues, Hannah and Matthew. Matthew and I are equals in our department, and Hannah is the head of our department, but not our direct supervisor. However, we both work with her outside of our manager's direct supervision. Hannah is married, while Matthew is not. Hannah is a very difficult boss, and she and I have had many differences during my time with the organization. She has a tendency to be a bully and is a classic micromanager. 
I feel as though I am treated much more harshly by Hannah than Matthew is. Many would classify my workplace as a hostile work environment. I work in an extremely specialized field with limited opportunities to move on, although I have tried. So leaving isn't really an option at the moment. I recently found out that Hannah is under investigation by the organization for her bullying and management style. A former employee in my department has reported this, and there is an independent report being compiled. I know for certain if the affair came to light, she would be fired immediately, and I feel that the organization would be better off without her. I do not have any proof of the affair, except that Matthew did admit it to me after I confronted him about it, but I know he would deny it if questioned. Should I ask HR to speak to this independent investigator and tell them what I know? I'm concerned about retribution and the impact to my career. What should I do? This is a juicy one. Hey, so I do want to start by saying um, a hostile work environment is a phrase with like a legal definition. Um, so it's not just like my boss is really mean or really unreasonable. It generally has to do with like repeated comments or conduct that are based on uh, legally protected classes, um, like uh, whether or not you have a disability or your gender or your race or your nationality. Um, so it may very well be that um, that that is at play here, but I just want to kind of let the letter writer know if your boss is just a real jerk and you hate coming into work, that does not necessarily um, mean that there's like an actionable hostile work environment. So to whatever degree that information is helpful to you, uh, it, it's good to, to know that there's actual um, legal criteria for that. So if this is you. What, what, what's your next move here? Uh, I mean, my my gut is telling me to just stay out of it. If there already is an investigation, it sounds like things will will play out in the way that the the letter writer is hoping. Uh, I think you risk a lot by trying to enter an investigation and going on the record and making a claim that you know for sure that another person will deny. I think um, getting in the middle of that is a risk and. It doesn't exactly in this context sound so necessary. Uh, it sounds like this uh, the boss, the bad boss, is about to get what's coming to them. Yeah, I, I think I'm with you there too. I think the next move either is let the investigation take place and hope for the best. Or um, if you really do want to do something, um, I think you have grounds to talk to these investigators and possibly even to HR just about uh, the fact that you believe that you're, uh, you know, the manager of your department treats you unfairly compared to the, you know, uh, the guy. It sounds like this letter writer is a woman. Um, uh, the man in your office, um, you know, you have plenty of grounds to talk about what she has done that you do have evidence for um, that don't involve speculating about something that you actually can't prove. So I think if you need to do something, it would be either go to the, you know, investigative board um, or to HR and to say, like, if I were to share information, would it be protected? I'm concerned about retaliation and then share, you know, what you shared with us, which is that, um, you know, I've seen examples of bullying. Um, I, I feel like she does X, Y and Z that make it really difficult to work for her. I can confirm what this other employee has reported. I have noticed these things, too. There's plenty of information that you could probably give them that you know to be true, um, you know that you can prove, and that will probably result in uh, Hannah being either disciplined or reassigned or losing her job um, that don't put you on the kind of thin ice of here is, uh, you know, uh, information that I can't prove about whether or not she's uh, having an affair with my colleague. 
Exactly. It it almost sounds like a lot of the other grievances that she brought up are much more, um, much more worth bringing up than just like that that one instance that 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 relationship that she can't prove. It almost sounds like that extra part isn't worth bringing up at all. Right, because your problem with Hannah really isn't the affair; it's everything else. Um, exactly. It's not like you're like, oh, she's always like leaving in the middle of the day to go to a motel with him. In which case, I think then you might have reason to say this affects our work. The The problem is uh, a number of other things and, and even the unfair treatment, like the preferential treatment that she gives this guy, you can still point to without saying, and I think it's because they're sleeping together. It, it, it's still demonstrably uh, something that you can discuss. Um, so stay on thick ice. Don't step out onto thin ice when you have <laughs> so much good, solid, thick ice right here. Um, and I hope... That someday you are eventually to uh, find work in your admittedly specialized field, um, but not in a company where there's so little oversight of really bad actors, because that just sounds like this has been a breeding ground for resentment for a really long time. And nobody could do their best work under those circumstances. No, I, uh, I, I, I'm just trying to imagine like years of a terrible boss and then also like being in a situation where I'm confronting my coworker of like, are you two having an affair? Yes, but I'll deny it <laughs> if anyone else asks me. Like clearly things have been devolving for a while. Man, oh man. Good luck. All right. So next letter is short and sweet and I hope simple and you get to read it. Yeah. Uh, this one resonates with me because I'm also a photographer. So the subject of this is photos of late wife. Dear Prudence, my wife of 40 years passed away almost two years ago. As an avid photographer, I have dozens of photos of her and us together and on display in our home. I'm 65 and just started dating again. What is the etiquette of displaying said photos when a date comes over? Our granddaughter says I need to lose the shrine. Uh, first of all, congrats on being 65 and scoring dates that's really cool good for you man yeah i'm uh, glad that you felt as, ready to start dating <laughs> yeah that's amazing um so i'm sorry that uh the wife of 40 years after two years uh being dead for two years i'm so sorry to hear that um but two years uh, i don't even know what i'm saying with that that's kind of a I can't relate. But as, as a photographer, I understand the sentimental uh, connection that you can have with photos beyond just the, the content of it and the emotion that you feel uh, from vi revisiting that place that you were in when you took that photograph. Um, so I wouldn't recommend losing all the photos and making them disappear. I think um, an excessive amount can become a problem and an obstacle in your future love life. Uh, but at the same time, um, too many is too many. And I, and I think any photographer knows that when you're editing through your photos, uh, you know that less, most of the time can be more. So, um, I think pick and choose and be very, um, you know, uh, be very direct about which photos you feel comfortable storing and putting away for now. Um, and which ones you feel like you just can't go on without. Yeah, and I think, too, like, my guess is if you are 65 and dating other people within your general, like, age bracket, most of them understand that you have lived, a, like, a life until now. I, I, I think it would maybe be different um, if you were dating people uh, who were, like, much, much younger and had sort of different expectations. But people in their 60s, I think, kind of get, like, you've had a life before you and I met. Um, and especially if this is, like first or second or third dates um i'd be a little surprised if any of them were like 
I really need your house to look like, you know, you just bought it yesterday and you're ready to start fresh. So sure, if you're about to bring a date home because you're ready to have sex and your bedroom is just like wall-to-wall pictures of you and your wife like on your wedding day, absolutely. I would maybe uh, encourage you to pick a couple favorites and then uh, move the rest to a photo album or a different part of the house. But if it's just, you know, my guess is this is just like kind of enthusiastic photographer with a number of family pictures up around the house. Um, I I don't think that if your dates aren't complaining, don't feel like your granddaughter has like the key to wisdom in dating. Do you know what I mean? Like, I bet your granddaughter does not have a lifetime's worth of experience with dates and is just kind of like making assumptions based on what she would feel like if she went home with somebody and they had a bunch of pictures up. Like she's a much younger person. She did not live a life with somebody else. She's not um, she's not coming from an area of expertise. So, mm. you know, if you want to um, uh, do a little bit of editing, I think that that would be fine. Um, but you were married to your wife for 40 years. That was a huge part of your life. Even if you were to um, become seriously involved with somebody else or even if you were to get married again, I don't think you would want to do so in a way that was based on I have to pretend that my first wife wasn't very important to me. So um, my advice would be consider doing some light editing, but don't worry too much about it. And, um, you know. Worst case scenario, go back to your date's house, you know, for the third date. Go go over to their place for coffee. Um, and and maybe they have a lot of pictures of, of their, like, late partner um, or, or previous marriages, you know? Like, I, I don't think you have to pretend that you are coming uh, to the dating scene uh, with no experience or no previous, um, you know, loves. Right. And if you bring someone back and you, you have edited it down and they still feel uncomfortable with the few pictures that you have up of uh, you and your late wife, I think that's a red flag. And that's that t- uh, that tells you that that person probably isn't going to be compatible with you in the future. Yeah, I, I think so, too. All right. Last letter. Um, sadly, not quite as simple and straightforward. Um But I'm hopeful that we will be able to provide them with at least uh, something useful um, that they can um, take with them. So the subject is missing sex. Dear Prudence, I've been with my current girlfriend for over three years now, and I love the relationship we've built together. We don't live together, and we're both in our mid-20s, but it's definitely a serious relationship. This past year, she was diagnosed with MS after showing symptoms for a while. She experiences chronic pain, lethargy, and some muscle spasms. I should note that she's not in critical condition, but she does have pesky flare-ups now and then. She's coping and doing really well, and I'm so proud of her for getting through it. One of the biggest symptoms she's having right now is a vastly decreased sex drive. We went from having sex almost every time we saw each other to doing so about once every four months. I know I can't imagine what her body is going through right now, and I don't want to put additional pressure on her, but this change has gotten to me a bit. I've tried to talk with her about it a few times, but she always brushes off. She always either brushes off the subject, says she suddenly feels too sick to talk right now, or flat out refuses to discuss it any further. She's absolutely not open to the idea of an open relationship either. I really don't know what to do right now. I feel like a terrible person for wanting sex while her drive is so minimal, but it does upset me to be unable to sustain a physical connection with the person I love. You don't just leave your partner when they're sick, but I sometimes really miss having a sexual connection and subsequently feel sad and depressed. What should I do? This is really tough. This is really tough. I think uh, sex could be one of the most important things in a relationship. 
So uh, having a relationship in which a partner uh, doesn't want to discuss that with you, doesn't want to discuss your sexual health with you could be uh, really hard to parse. But the fact that she uh, she's not deciding to not have sex with you, it's just a physical condition. It's the result of her of her of her her chemistry. I think that could. I think that means that you might have to uh, put her in a position where she needs to discuss this with you. Uh, if this sound, this isn't just important to you. This is important to the relationship, and she should know that if she does care about this relationship and want to sustain it, uh, that this conversation needs to happen. And I'm, I'm not saying go out and just force her to, but really help her understand that she needs to have this conversation with you, uh, because not talking about it is not going to put you in a place where it's sustainable. Yeah, and I just want to address that line about you don't just leave your partner when they're sick. Um, and I don't want to put the entire like discourse about that on you, letter writer. Um, but a lot of people do leave their partners when they get sick. Um, and uh, I believe there was actually a study published in um, about like 2009 in the journal Cancer about how, um, at least in marriages, um, uh when wives become sick, um, they are seven times as likely to be left by their male partners um, as when men get sick in a marriage, in a straight marriage, I should say. So I, I just want to acknowledge it happens a lot, and it happens in a really gendered way. Men often leave their female partners when they get sick. You know, I just think that's wow. worth acknowledging, that's worth talking about. Um, and again, I'm not saying that because you, letter writer, are, are personally responsible for all of that. But I do think... Um, there's a real difference in terms of like gendered expectations about what care looks like, about what support looks like, about what anticipating somebody else's needs look like and whose responsibility that is. So that said, I think there's an opportunity here in addition to I want to be able to talk about this, even if the conversation just means we both express that we're sad and we don't know what the future is going to hold. Like I'm not asking us to have a conversation where you promise that you're going to be ready to have sex again in six months or a year or whatever else. But I do want to be available to have that conversation at some point. Like you have every right to say that. I think there's also maybe an opportunity here for you to ask your girlfriend, um, am I supporting you? as much as you need. Because, you know, you say she's not in critical condition. She has pesky flare-ups. She's coping. She's doing really well. I'm so proud of her. You don't say much about um, what what you have done to really kind of like get in the trenches of what this is like for her. And so I'm a little curious, would she characterize um, her recent diagnosis as I'm coping, I'm doing really well, everyone's proud of me, I'm, quote, getting through it? Or would she characterize it maybe as, um, I never know when the next flare-up's going to come. Uh, I'm full of anxiety and fear. Uh, I often just feel ill. And I actually don't feel like I can ask my partner for all the help that I need because I'm afraid if I actually told him what I needed, he would run screaming for the hills. So again, I don't want to say that that's definitely the dynamic. But I think you know when you go back and you say, this conversation hasn't gone well when we've tried to talk about it before. And I'm wondering, you know, my beloved girlfriend, um, how are you really doing? Am I helping enough? Are there things that you want to ask me to help you with but you're afraid to? Are there ways in which I have communicated to you that what I expect is that you mostly manage this on your own, do a great job, be proud and inspiring, um, and, and mostly not need much from me? Because if so, 
I want that to change. Uh, I want to be really a partner to you in this. Um, And and I'm wondering if part of the reason that um, my requests to talk about sex have been off-putting to you is because um, there's ways in which I'm not stepping up right now. And then if I, on top of that, ask, when are you going to start wanting to have sex with me again, you feel isolated, misunderstood, cut off. Yeah, that that sounds about right to me, too. I just worry that uh, when you are in a position where you are, uh, when your partner gets sick, you absolutely, absolutely do need to make some concessions to help them recover and to help them go through what they're going through. Uh, whatever you think that they're going through, it probably is worse uh, just because the added pressure of being in a relationship with someone who uh might feel like they need to change their lifestyle to worry about you. So you absolutely need to be conscious of that. But at the same time, you cannot allow yourself to just uh, forfeit all of the things that you need out of a relationship. Uh, You know, uh, sex is important. Uh, Sex is the glue that keeps relationships together. Uh, So I think... Uh, at least uh, in, in my experience, so I think you, it, you that conversation needs to happen one way or the, uh, one way or another. Whether or not uh, you have that conversation right away, maybe there, it requires another conversation to lead up to the to the greater conversation. But also um, be sensitive to the fact that she's going through a lot, uh, and a lot of how she's acting might be a response to her chemistry and her biology and maybe medicine. Uh, so I think really being patient and allowing her space to um, to grow into uh, another space where she can have that conversation with you is just as important as having the conversation itself. So, yeah, I think she just you need to help her understand how important sex is to you. and i'm I'm certain that will that will play out well for you, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I also, I'm I'm glad that you pointed that out. I don't want to say the only answer here is for you to feel terrible and say, I'm the worst partner in the world. I don't deserve to have sex. All I need to do is look after you. Like, I I want you to be able to um, incorporate all of these possibilities and all of these realities um, into this conversation. And and so, yeah, you absolutely still get to say, um, you know, I hope we get to start having sex again soon. Uh, I, I hope we're able to, if not have sex, find ways to experience physical intimacy with one another that feel real, meaningful, um, grounding, um, and important, even if it doesn't, you know, if it doesn't lead to sex. Um, and I think I would just end with this one line. I can't imagine what her body is going through right now. And I think the key there is... Um, while it's true that you can't experience what she's experiencing physically, um, you can ask. Um, you can learn. So you don't need to necessarily um, imagine it. Although certainly I think it would be helpful to you know, occasionally run the mental exercise. Um, how would I feel if tomorrow I knew I was going to start experiencing chronic pain, muscle spasms, and an inability to get out of bed? How would that affect my relationship with my body? Um, but, but I do think come at it from a place of curiosity. Um, rather than how do we solve this problem. So uh, try to find ways, again, without pushing, um, but just asking. Um, I I would love to know if you want to talk more about um, what your daily experience is like with this, or if you feel like there's something I have not been genuinely listening to as you try to share um, what this diagnosis has been like for you. I do want to know more. I do want to know what it's like um, to be in your body right now, because I love you, and I love your body. Um, 
And I think if you can kind of approach it from that perspective rather than um, either I'm a bad person for wanting sex or um, I deserve sex and if I'm not getting it, I should leave. Um, More a conversation of how do we prioritize our intimacy right now? How can we learn more about one another's bodies? Um, How can we cultivate patience, safety, and intimacy together? Um, And um, what are the questions I'm not asking? I think that will um, move you in a good direction. And, And again, all of that said, If someday the two of you break up, um, if you break up as a direct result of your inability to find some sort of um, compromise on sex and intimacy between the two of you, that happens. Um, That does not mean that you are a monster. There are ways to talk honestly about what you are and aren't capable of that might be hard or disappointing or painful, Um, but it also does not mean that... um, you are locked into um, one choice or one future. Um, you are allowed to do a variety of different things, um, and that's okay. Well said. Thanks. Sorry, I feel like that was a bit of a monologue, but uh, you know, I, I have so much compassion for both of them, and I just want to make sure that this letter writer is asking the right questions and, and listening in the right way. Yeah. Well, we did it. We uh, answered all of today's questions. And uh, how how are you feeling? How are you holding up? I can do thirty more of these if you got the time. Oh my gosh, this would be great! Yeah, we could kind of just like lock down the whole summer's worth of shows. Yeah, um, yeah, just, let's do it. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you so much for for being on the show, and I, I hope that our our, our listeners um, who have especially questions kind of more in the uh, vicinity of like maleness and relationships or family, race, and sex that they can come check you out. Um, and I hope very much that we get to see you again sometime. Yeah, this was, this was so much fun. Thank you for having me on. Of course. Thank you so much for being here. Have a great rest of the day. You too. Bye-bye. Well, friends, we did it. Um, I can't tell you the degree to which uh, thinking about all of your problems made the fact that once again I have left my freelance taxes till the absolute last second feel so much more manageable and bearable. I'm very curious to see if next April the 15th, I've done the exact same dumb things and experienced the exact same dumb consequences. If I do, I'll be sure to let all of you know about it. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Production assistance was by Taylor Simmons. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR, that's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds, a minute, tops. Thanks for listening. And on today's plus segment. It's interesting. This is sort of reading to me almost like your father is part of this religion that you were able to to escape. And I understand you not wanting to, to put yourself back into that space. And that's so difficult uh, considering the context of your, your mother being sick. 
yeah, I just, I, I don't know how I would feel if my mother was in that state. I don't know if that would be the time that I'd want to raise such a, a lifelong issue with my father. It, it almost feels like it's inappropriate. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash prudipod.